Hello, everybody, and once again, welcome to the CFA's Future Proofing Finance podcast, where we talk about all things financial, innovation, disruption, and yes, occasionally we talk about crypto as well. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Tom. Tom, say hello for the fans. Hello. And I'm really looking forward to this week's chat with gentleman banker, Simon Russell. Perhaps it's better if you do the introduction yourself. Explain to people your background, Simon, where you come from and what you specialise in. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Ben and Tom. I'm delighted to be talking with everyone today. Um, thank you very much for, for taking time to, to have me on the show and to, to listening in. Um, ben and I first met, uh, showing our very advancing years now, probably about 30 years ago, isn't it? Gosh, that really does start to make me feel old. We were um, students together at, at City University Business School here in London, which has gone through about 27 name changes since, but um, still a fantastic place to, to have learned together and uh, all kinds of great war stories and anecdotes. And But anyway, in terms of background, after I did my degree in economics, I went off and um, saw the bold, exciting future and became a chartered accountant, you know, that well-worn path. Uh, but I realised I'm talking to the CFA Institute, so, you know, fellow, you know, girls and boys, you know, I think we're of, of similar sort of uh, like minds and characters. So saw that very much as a, a really great foundation. I wasn't clever enough to do the CFA, so I did ACA instead. Um, after my ACA, I'd, I was already started during my training specialising in corporate finance, which back in the early 90s, you know, was not the industry that it is today. And it was a bit more cottage industry. I was doing a lot with kind of growth companies, as they were called, which was tech, biotech, that kind of stuff. And I'd done a bit of computer science in my degree, majored in economics, but also did a sort of minor first year in, in computer science and, you know, really enjoyed that. And, you know, saw this wonderful, wacky new thing called the Internet coming along. I was hearing about it from friends who were studying at university in the US and it all sounded, you know, remarkable. We might actually buy books online. And how, how do they sort of like send the book through your computer? And, you know, all those kind of wonderful questions were in my mind back then. But I could really see the opportunity in the future. So I decided to professionally specialize in technology, as it was then called, which was, you know, software, internet, you know, nascent internet and various other ancillary things. And I went from, you know, raising early stage money for a robotics business on the Cambridge Science Park to working with some quite well-known internet businesses when they were literally writing their business plans and raising early stage venture capital. This was the kind of mid-90s into late-90s. And then from there, moved into investment banking, um, worked in various different firms, uh, worked my way up the um, ever greasier, greasy pole and uh, became a managing director at Dresden Climate back in uh, early 2008. So with impeccable, impeccable timing, I uh, got my move into the executive uh, you know, dining room and executive washroom, just as, uh, you know, all the banks kind of came crashing down. But it was a fascinating learning experience, you know, really incredible to, to sort of sit there and, and sort of go through that. And I was telling tales about it to uh, some of the tech businesses I'm currently working with just last weekend, obviously, with um, SVB's very sad uh, situation and, you know, fantastic rescue actually by HSBC. And we'll probably will touch on that during the course of the discussion. So I've been at various different firms, um, spent 27 years, I guess, doing uh, either, you know, consulting, accounting, banking for tech companies my whole career, helped clients complete about 150 deals in that time, very much sort of software, internet, fintech, all points in between. So I can definitely give some, some views and perspectives around that. I finished investment banking at Christmas, uh, finally realized that I think the industry I joined had massively changed and frankly, I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. I think you've got to listen to your heart. And, you know, if you don't believe in something anymore, it's probably time to move on. 
So I'm thrilled to say that I'm now actually doing a much more real job. I'm working on boards, um, on the board of a, an AI machine learning uh, software business in Ireland called Planner, which is super high growth, incredible technology. I mean, just blows my mind when I see it. Like I am biased, I'm a board member, but it's amazing. And it's set up by some serial software entrepreneurs who've done this before and been very successful. So people who kind of know what they're doing, and I'm thrilled to be on the, the, the sort of rocket ship with them. I'm also getting involved with a, a vertical market software consolidator company called Abingdon, um, which is an amazing business set up by you know fantastic young CEO, uh, backed by some very big family offices and some some really great venture capitalists. And that's going to be a consolidator as we sort of see a lot of change and you know transition going in the software industry. It's a chance to buy up maybe more mature businesses and, and help them go through a transition to software as a service, different kinds of revenue model, different kinds of innovation. So, you know, really excited about those two. I'm doing quite a few things around the tech ecosystem. I joined Boardwave and joined Tech London Advocates, very much trying to help put something back and support the community that's been really good to me for most of the last 30 years. Um, and look, I'm conscious I'm rambling on, but that's my sort of introduction. And hopefully we've still got a few minutes left for a, a proper actual Q&A session. Uh, but let me pause there, Ben. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, there's a lot to go through on that list. So. Could you just explain broadly how you've seen, say, the financial network around the venture capital and entrepreneur and tech scene in UK and Europe change over that 30 years, where you see it now? And since it's very topical, just the importance of Silicon Valley Bank. I personally was aware of its role, certainly on the West Coast, but I hadn't appreciated just how big and important it got into the UK market. So perhaps if we just kick off with that. Absolutely. That's no, a good good point. And let me sort of maybe start with the, the end first there. So, look, I'm a, an unashamed sort of fan and supporter of Silicon Valley Bank. I think some fantastic people there. It's absolutely embedded in the fabric of the tech ecosystem globally. You know, and, and you're absolutely right. It started obviously in Silicon Valley, hence the uh, imaginative name, um, but it become, you know, a very big part of the European ecosystem. You know, frankly, funding companies that other banks wouldn't fund. And, you know, it was doing that in a very supportive, sympathetic way. You know, it accepted that there are bumps in the road, that technology is by its nature volatile, fast moving, fast changing. And, you know, many of the best technology businesses here in Europe and in the US would not exist were it not for the support that they've had from Silicon Valley Bank. So, you know, I was very saddened to see uh, what was happening there. Um, I'm not an expert on bank balance sheets, Ben. I think you know a lot more about them than I do. But, um, you know, clearly it, it wasn't working and clearly they needed to be part of something bigger and stronger and therefore fantastic to see. Um, HSBC, you know, take over. I think they're a great bank, HSBC, and absolutely amazing to see them do this. I think it's a really bold move to all in about 24, 48 hours, you know, sort of lightning speed. And, you know, I, I really think that's um, fantastic. All credit to them and actually all credit to the UK government and all the different tech community bodies that were involved in helping uh, make that deal happen. So, you know, to, to answer the bigger part of your question, you know, why is that kind of important? Well, if I go back to that kind of late 90s, you know, there was I, you know, mid-20s, um, you know, not with the graying hair that I've now got. For, for those of you who aren't obviously seeing us, uh, Ben and I both sporting beards. His is much longer than mine. Mine is probably grayer than his. Um, and if I go back to the youthful, fresh-faced version of me, you know, back in the late 90s, there was a, a networking group called First Tuesday, which met, unsurprisingly, on the first Tuesday of every month. And you'd see people like Brent Hoberman, Marlene Fox, you know, lots of the kind of pioneers of the tech and internet scene from the late 90s. They were there. And it sort of started as like 20, 30 people, you know, gathering in a bar for a few drinks and a chat and comparing experiences and going, oh, 
you're raising venture capital. Well, maybe Simon can help you. Oh, Simon, do you know that VC over there? And I'd say, yeah, VC, come and have a beer with this person or that person. And, you know, it was all done as a bit of a handshake and, you know, friendship and starting to put things together. Very kind of localized. That, that was the beginnings of it. By about 99, 2000, you know, first Tuesday got, you know, all the big sort of sponsors jumping onto it. And it was a massive event. I remember going to one of the last first Tuesdays at Fabric Nightclub in Smithfield and looking around thinking, who on earth are all these people? And gosh, there's sort of men in suits here. And, you know, there's people trying to sell us IT equipment and, you know, banner advertising. Remember that, you know, and, and would be like a billboard ad for whichever internet business was raising venture capital at that time. You know, that was a surefire way to generate investment dollars was go and take your, your VC money and stick it on a tube billboard. Um, anyway, those were the happy days. And, you know, that that community obviously sort of changed, went down with the uh, the, the collapse and the dot-com sort of boom and bust. And I was there ringside sort of seeing all that happen. But, you know, if I look back, there were only a handful of VCs in Europe, literally single-digit handful. Private equity really wasn't doing this much then. You know, we had a few people who were just dipping their toe in the water. Whereas you look at, you know, a fund like HG, which is a long-term client of mine, incredible success story. I think they now manage about $55 billion assets under management, purely doing global software based here in London, headquartered out here. Offices in the US and offices in Europe, but headquartered out of London. You know, HG was a spin out from Mercury Asset Management, hence the HG chemical name, um, back in early 2000s, 2001, something like that. And, you know, back then they had, you know, a, a decent bit of money, maybe a billion, two billion, but they were a generalist. And they then became, you know, sector aligned and then sector focused and now pure, pure, 100% sector devoted. So, you know, that, that kind of example, I just use that to illustrate, you know, the massive change we've seen probably 20 years. I call it 20 years, nice round number. I think back to 2003, I remember, you know, tech was pretty much down at the bottom. I had friends and family saying to me, oh, Simon, you should probably get out of tech. You should go and get a proper job. Why don't you go and be an auditor again? you know, that kind of stuff. And actually, I stuck with this, and I'm very glad that I did. You know, and I just use that HD example to illustrate one big point. Investment capital didn't really exist in Europe for tech 20 years ago. Now it does. You know, if you look at some of the best VCs, you know, Sequoia, you know, Index, Insight, you know, they're all doing deals globally, doing a lot of deals in Europe. You know, these funds were were tiny or, you know, it didn't even exist 20 years ago. And now they're they're kind of big players. You know, and, you know, I'd make a, a point from this as well. If you look at the changes in capital markets, 20 years ago, I'd say even 10 years ago or 15 years ago, certainly, you know, it was very fashionable to float your tech company on the London Stock Exchange. If I go a little bit further back, 2001, 2003, I was floating companies on the growth exchanges all over Europe, you know, Neuermark, Nova Mercato, Nova Marche, uh, AIM, you know, remember all of those. Um, and not many of them really survive today. AIM does, but kind of quite different look and feel to what it was like back then. Um, what's changed is that very few tech businesses in Europe would ever contemplate the idea of an IPO. You know, it's bureaucratic, it's time consuming, it involves talking to investors and analysts who don't really focus on the sector. If they're going to float, they're probably going to the US now, but they can only really do that when they're a multi-billion dollar market cap company. So that means by nature, you know, there's only a few that kind of make it to that stage. So time and time again here, you know, tech businesses raise venture, raise growth equity, raise money from family offices, scale up, and then either sell to the new big class of private equity investors, you know, and that could be, you know, HG, it could be Marlin, it could be Axel KKR, it could be literally probably about 100 funds who are now active in the, the, the London and European theatre, 
or they sell to strategic buyers, which time and time again, probably 70, 80% of those in tech are from the US. There's sometimes some from Europe, sometimes some from Asia, but overwhelmingly it's US. So the demographic has sort of changed. The nature of capital markets has changed. And I don't think that's a problem. Some do, and some in the sector kind of, you know, sad to see that we don't really have a big IPO scene over here. I look at it much more pragmatically and say, look, just go where the money's going. The money's gone into venture. It's gone into private equity. It's got a lot more sector savvy. Go where that money is. Wow, that's quite a uh, quite an answer. And um, I got so uh, distracted whilst you were talking um, that I started looking up facial recognition uh, and uh, AI modification tools online because uh, I know AI is a topic you're, you're uh, fond to talk about and maybe we can use that as our little segue into it. Sure. The question that I want to ask is you, in your opening blurb, you mentioned, um, you know, the internet hitting you like a freight train. I think AI has hit us all like a freight train. And if not, it's because we're not got our computer monitors on. Uh, I mean, ChatGPT is just, you know, just the the most obvious and uh, easiest accessible. But uh, I was I was wondering if we could talk more generally about AI first and then maybe get into, um, you know, some of what you're seeing in the space. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a topic that I'm really fascinated by and um, a great book actually here, Deep Learning Illustrated. There you go. Snappy title um, written by John Crone, who is one of the world leading gurus on AI. And the great thing about this is it's got pictures, hence the word illustrated. So even a, a numpty like me can actually understand this and it under, you know, explains and helps you understand, you know, you mentioned facial recognition, Tom, how facial recognition works you know, and the science behind it all. Now, you know, why do I sort of touch on that as the beginning of this? Well, I find it fascinating to learn about this. And it's one of these things where you've got to separate the noise and the signal a little bit. Um, you know, as Ben probably knows, I'm a, a big sort of club culture, music, underground dance music sort of aficionado and grew up a lot with the rave scene in the sort of late 80s, early 90s and the hip hop world and drum and bass and all of that. And, you know, one of my all-time favourite songs is Public Enemies, Don't Believe the Hype. You know, and I, I won't try and sing it to you, it'd be too embarrassing, but a great chorus line, which unsurprisingly says, don't believe the hype. And I think one of the things with AI is it's amazing. It is groundbreaking. This is stuff that is totally pioneering. And London is actually a massive, massive community of this. You know, and I, I'm, you know, big fan of history. And I look back at, you know, Isaac Newton or Alan Turing is a massive hero of mine. You know, and I think, gosh, you know, the, the science and the innovations and the ideas of some of these people if they were only alive today to see this, I think they'd be really excited and really proud about, you know, what we're creating. And we're creating it here, right here. You know, Cambridge, Oxford, London, the universities in those places are forming some incredible businesses like DeepMind that Google bought. You know, and I had the privilege of meeting the DeepMind team quite early on in their life cycle before Google acquired them. And I saw them a few years later after they've been part of Google and Google were pumping it full of incredible amounts of resource to, to really sort of take this forward. But, you know, they were three college kids. I think it was UCL. You know, they were in the UCL computing labs and they developed this. You know, incredible. And, and those guys absolutely deserve all the credit for, for what they've, they've pioneered. So I think we're just at the beginnings of a great big kind of bow wave, a great big evolution in AI. And I, I'd come back. I'll just finish on this one point about this. And, and, you know, let me pause then. This thing about don't believe the hype, you know, Everybody sort of uses AI, machine learning as kind of catchphrases. You read it in pretty much every startup business plan at the moment. You've really got to sort of understand what it is. Are they machine learning or are they artificial intelligence? Are they predictive AI or generative AI like chat GPT? Which generation of AI are they? Is it their own models or are they using somebody else's models? How does it all stack together? 
you know, and then where do they go with this and how sophisticated is it really? So there's a lot that are kind of just basic algorithms and that's still interesting and important, but the really exciting stuff is when you marry up, you know, algorithms, you know, large language models, deep pools of data, deep data lakes, you know, you bring in different layers of, of machine learning tools and toolkits from other providers and you kind of put it all together and bake the cake. That's where it gets exciting. But let me pause there, Tom. I'm conscious I'm rambling away. Not at all. One of our last uh, guests actually was a deep uh, tech uh, VC investor. And uh, uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to lose Ben and I in tech. Uh, we're not exactly uh, tech experts as CFAs. Um, but uh, he was very gentle and he still lost us. So um, <laughs> so it's nice to talk to another non, non-tech non and uh, and be able to, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, go, go through the, uh, go through the, the uh, go through with you know explore each other's ignorance here but i'm i'm interested in um in particular on the ai front you you touched on an interesting thing there there's almost kind of you know applications the layer above what's being built and the science that's going on um what is it about ai in particular that gives you kind of those internet vibes like this is going to change the world i think it's very much a, a journey and you know we think back to you know a film that i loved in the what was it? Probably early nineties, you know, Terminator and Terminator Two, you know, and we had Skynet, you know, that was going to sort of start, you know, killing off humanity because we'd become a threat to its own existence. You know, it's a fascinating story. It's a brilliant film. I think Terminator Two is better than all of the others. Personally, that's my little bit of filmic advice for you all. Um, I think you know the the premise of it though is really interesting because back then it was absolutely pure sci-fi. And actually now that kind of isn't pure sci-fi at all. And that's why it's really interesting that many luminaries around the sector and some of the deep mind guys, for example, are involved in various um, kind of ethics bodies around the use of AI. So, you know, if you've got some of the smartest minds in modern day humanity talking about, you know, need for ethics around AI, that probably tells you something. It probably tells you this stuff is very powerful and it needs to be properly carefully managed. I was at a dinner just before Christmas hosted by friends in the kind of political world. And and the speaker was a former, very senior MI6 figure. And he was talking about, you know, one of the things that they sort of see around this is the use of it by bad actors in terms of, you know, cyber hacks, the use of it to, you know, take over and control, you know, electrical grids. You know, and okay, hackers have been able to do this for a while, but you marry up that with AI and it starts to become, you know, quite a different proposition. You know, the ability to hack and control drones and do automated warfare, you know, and that sort of stuff is, is you know, Skynet. It's Terminator 2. Now, I don't mean to scare people at all with this, but this is the power of the technology. So do we need to have some ethics bodies around it? Yeah, we do. Do we need governmental invention? Probably not yet, but we do need to be mindful of where this is going. Um, now, if you look at, you know, ChatGPT, you know, that's really interesting because it is generative AI. So you had predictive AI which is, you know, running sort of effectively algorithms and machine learning over data sets and forming a view on predictions where that goes. And Planner, the business that I'm involved in as a non-exec, is both predictive and generative. So it can look at data, pull out information from accounting systems, financial systems, and form a prediction as to where the, you know, financial performance of that business is going to go. And it's unnervingly accurate. You know, we back-tested it on previous year's data and it's like 96, 90%, 98% accurate and accurate forward-looking predicting out a couple of years. So it's predictive, but then it's also generative because it then takes that information and says, okay, here's the prediction, but here's a bunch of things you could do about this. 
you know, and therefore it's generative, it's generating ideas that you can actually use as the human kind of interface. So that's one of the things that I think is really powerful with this next wave of AI. And ChatGPT has obviously got a lot of attention and it's a very cool piece of technology. If you haven't seen it demoed, it's well worth seeing it. It's incredible. Um, you know, and it's really interesting to see the applications of that. So, you know, if I jump around, we started talking about Skynet and Terminator. You know, now we're jumping on to kind of where we are today. And that's generative AI married up with predictive AI. You know, where does it go in the future? Well, again, I, I jump back to sort of DeepMind, you know, that is incredible, that business. So, okay, it got its kind of profile for being able to play, I think it's AlphaGo, isn't it? The Asian kind of game, a bit like chess, and actually beat some of the world kind of grandmasters at that game. But actually, if you study DeepMind a little bit more or talk to them, they've been doing some incredible work with the NHS and with um, healthcare data. And again, looking at patterns, looking at you know what causes maybe certain illnesses, how diagnostics can be improved. You know, and I remember them talking to me about how they'd used it for cancer diagnosis. And some of the world's leading oncologists could look at, you know, medical images and, you know, spot things. And the human eye and the human mind is still the most powerful software on the face of the planet. But, you know, the way that AI worked and the way that DeepMind could be used, it was a force multiplier. So it could cover what a human eye can cover, but it could do all of that across multiple different images at once. And therefore, it could feed back to the oncologist and say, okay, You've spotted this in one patient's records. We've spotted it now in a thousand others. And here are the people that you really need to worry about. And those are the ones that need urgent treatment. That kind of thing, that's where it starts to become a, a force for good. And so I think we've got to just think about that force for good versus risk for bad actors. And that's why we need sort of ethical frameworks. We need to be constantly thinking about where this technology is going, who's managing that technology, where that innovation is happening, and is it ultimately in the hands of the, of the good people rather than the bad? Thanks for that, Simon. On the subject of uh, hacking, I really can recommend a book by Nicole Perlroth called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, which I think is a fantastic read explaining the history of hacking and where we are now. Great uh, to kind of catch up and actually get quite scared about the subject. Certainly where I work at the moment, we've been using predictive machine learning and we started to use generative AI on some of the other stuff. I know I have my opinions, but you stand in both camps in terms of traditional finance, so particularly from the corporate finance background, and you can see this technology. What do you think it will mean for financial markets, for firms, for just some of the incumbent industry players, certainly from a CFA viewpoint? No, absolutely. And and look, I mean, one of the, you know, you, you and I both love um, books, Ben, and, you know, we're both pretty polymath-like in our, our reading. I think we enjoy all kinds of different genres, different fields. Um, so if I flip round from kind of, you know, Nicole Pearl's excellent book actually around, around hacking, definitely recommended. You know, I mentioned the, the John Crane book on deep learning illustrated, very snappy title. Another book that I'd recommend people read is The Fear Index by Robert Harris. So a novel, which is a fantastic portrait that then became a film, actually, a good film, but I'd say an even better book personally. Great, great, great read. Um, and it's all about a hedge fund using AI to um predict and, and sort of drive their performance in financial markets. And Ben, you might roll your eyes and say, as a, a markets guy, oh, we've, you know, we've been doing this for years and everyone's got a bit of this. And probably right, but this is a great sort of premise. It's like sort of Terminator 2 Skynet applied to financial markets. And you know, I won't do a spoiler, but read read the book because it's a fantastic book and really well written. And I was reading it some years ago and I was on a plane to Tokyo, an overnight flight from Heathrow out to Tokyo for some meetings. And the guy sitting next to me in the front end of the plane, thankfully, um, not not bragging, but just, you know, one of those sort of late night moments, you don't want to be sitting at the back. I was um, 
talking to this guy and he turned out I was reading the same book and I won't name him, but he was a CEO of a very major hedge fund. And he was on his way out to Tokyo to go and see some investors for his next fundraise. And we got talking about this book and he was saying, you know, this stuff does exist in financial markets, but it's kind of scary where this could go. And at what point does the machine actually control the markets? And at what point do we control the markets? I mean, it's an interesting thing. Again, it comes back to that point about ethics. So I think there's something there about, you know, how financial markets use these tools, how trading desks use these tools. And, you know, because of its force multiplier nature, AI could become a, a massive increase in volatility. It could become a massive destabilizer to financial markets and the financial system. Or flip it around the positive way, you know, we could use it to spot sort of patterns in markets that may be alarming. We could spot, you know, massive short selling going on somewhere or, you know, some financial market irregularities, some shenanigans and skullduggery. And we could kind of point, you know, the central banks and regulators at that early on. So I think there's, again, different ways you can kind of use these tools. And then if we flip it around to thinking about investment, you know, I'd say most software companies, big and small, have to have some kind of viewpoint on what AI will do for them today. You know, and obviously Microsoft, you know, massive industry giant, you know, incredible business really has reinvented itself through multiple technology waves over the last, what, 40 odd years now. It's, you know, it's really impressive, actually, how they've they've ridden each wave and kind of caught the next one at the right point and carried on. You know, they've obviously invested in OpenAI, which is the business that has created ChatGPT. And I think it was in the uh, Financial Times and other publications at the end of last week that Microsoft are looking to build ChatGPT into office applications. So when you turn on your word, you know, instead of it just being, you know, a little bit of light touch kind of machine learning help that already exists in Word and has done for some time, actually now, you know, instead of just having your grammar and spelling checked, you know, you can have content written for you. You know, okay, we all know that, you know, lots of students can misuse this and, you know, talk to friends in teaching and they say that more and more essays are actually identical because they've been written by the same software. Um, but, you know, again, good and bad uses for this sort of stuff. But every tech company has to have a sort of strategy on this. And if you want to think about where you personally invest, you could invest in those industry majors who are making big bets on this kind of technology early. And then you could also look at investing in some of the cooler new companies that are coming up. Some of those are maybe funded by EIS money and, you know, easy to get into EIS and BCT kind of schemes. You know, if you can't obviously get into to venture and private equity funds directly, that might be a way to kind of get into some of these technologies and play them early on and then have your kind of large cap, large quotient company uh, base as a sort of hedge to that. But every company has got to do something about this. This AI wave is not going away. It's just beginning. I couldn't agree more. At the time of talking, we've obviously just had the uh, Credit Suisse bailing, and we've seen uh, Bitcoin rally quite aggressively as a result of it, as it is once again a return to the financial system. I was just wondering if you've got any thoughts about that as, as a technology going forward in terms of the wider blockchain. Obviously, vast amount of money has been pumped into it. Once again, we've got problems in the traditional financial system. Is this finally its time of proof? Yeah, no, look, it's a really good question, Ben. And Again, I, I would come back to dear old public enemy. Don't believe the hype. You know, I think, again, you've got to separate noise from signal. So, you know, is blockchain a really exciting, really interesting transformational technology? Yes. You know, is it about as exciting as a cheese sandwich? If you actually think about it as a big, ugly database? Yes. Who's the biggest database company on the face of the planet? Oracle. You know, Oracle trades a pretty mature company, EBITDA multiple, PE multiple, et cetera. It's a very mature technology. What is blockchain? Blockchain is an open version of that. So if you look at it like that, it's an enabling technology and it's important and it's interesting. But again, you know, don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. 
you know, this is not going to be in everyone's pockets. It's not suitable for widows and orphans. Why? Because Bitcoin and Ether and all the other things, all the, you know, the Elon Musk kind of joke coins and all the other nonsense that's out there. What does that remind me of? Well, you know, you and I both studied economics at uni, Ben. I remember us, you know, sitting in the lectures of monetary history and hearing all about the fascinating, you know, tulip mania of the early 1600s in, in Holland. You know, tulip bulbs were traded for more than the cost of those beautiful Amsterdam canal houses. You know, that's a speculative mania. And there was no foundation to it. There was no backing for it. There was no system of regulation for it. Hmm, ladies and gentlemen, what does that sound a little bit like? Yes, boys and girls, Bitcoin. And, you know, I think that's the issue. So believe in blockchain as a technology. Absolutely. You can make a ton of money trading Bitcoin. Good luck to you. I'm not going anywhere near it. I will put my money into AI. I'll put my money into software. I'll put my money into the big major players in tech. We've been around 40 years and be around in 40 years time. You will not catch me putting any money into Bitcoin. I just think it doesn't have any monetary backing. It doesn't have any governance. It doesn't have any support system. But you can make a ton of money. And I know people who've made you know, 100 times their investment trading on the way up. I also know people who've lost everything, everything, because the thing has just crashed. It's always going to be a whipsaw. It's always going to be volatile. So caveat emptor, play with it if you like, but you won't catch me there. That's uh, certainly um, a strong view. Um, and uh, I could pick some of it apart, but I don't think that's the point. I think uh, you made your point well. Um, I was going to get on to, you started talking Oracle evaluation. And uh, I think one thing we've now interviewed, three very bright minds in the VC space. I'm trying to count them. Um, and one thing, uh, you know, as a CFA, that's missing is conversation about valuation. You know, it's all, uh, you know, it's all bull market. It's all too expensive. And then it's all, oh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, as a uh, ACA, I'm I'm fascinated to hear, you know, how you've seen valuations uh, over the last little while, um, and uh, maybe more broadly, um, are there sensible ways uh, to learn about valuations in this space? Because it seems a bit whispery in terms of how people talk about it. And then, you know, if you get the the AI tick, then you get a little bit extra. And if you get this tick, you know, it's 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 a it's it's FOMO driven valuation, which as a CFA is very hard pill to swallow. But uh yeah, maybe I could let you elaborate. Yeah, no, it's a really good good question. And um you're always very happy to debate Bitcoin. I think you're probably more of a bull on it than, than I am. But um, you know, look, I would we, we come back to valuations and sort of say, you know, we're at valuation levels now that to me as a nearly 30-year tech banker feel kind of oversold in some ways. Now, you know, before you both sort of cough and splutter and say, you know, you're mad, son, you know, yeah, we had a speculative mania, a tulip bubble, a Bitcoin bubble in tech valuations generally in 2020 and 2021. This was the world where, you know, we were never going to leave our homes again. We were going to live digitally forever. You know, we would buy food online, we'd, you know, do our Peloton classes, we'd, you know, live entirely in our screens. And, you know, of course, we all do a ton of that now, but we actually have a real life world as well, which is really nice to, to, to rejoin and, you know, wonderful that we're all back out there and, you know, not locked down and not in the pandemic conditions anymore. But, you know, we definitely had a, a kind of bubble, you know, and if we look at the, you know, the spikes that we saw in maybe kind of mid-2021, you know, the average growth company valuation in software was up at about 22 times revenue. Revenue, not profit, revenue. Now, you know, those valuations are back down to a much more modest eight times revenue on average. That's the high growth businesses. And high growth are kind of, you know, what we define in banking terms, 
typically when we looked at the market and sliced and diced it, we looked at companies making 20% or more revenue growth. You know, if you look at the more mature companies, you know, some of the big enterprise software companies that we've, we've already touched on, you know, they were kind of, you know, around five, six times revenues at the market peak. Now they're around four times revenues. You look at EBITDA multiples, you know, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization. You know, again, the high growth hit a lofty 68.9 times in about July 21. as an EBITDA multiple on average across the category. Now down to about 30 times. So has there been a massive sell-off? Yes. But to me, as a long-term tech bull, it does feel a little bit overdone, you know, because some of the businesses that we're talking about aren't growing at 20% a year. That's the average for the category. Some of these businesses growing at 100% a year or more. And businesses that are investing all their profits in that growth in sales and marketing. But if they stop spending on that, you know, they'd actually be very profitable. You know, and I touched on Microsoft earlier. You know, you look at, at Microsoft, you know, look at Salesforce, which is going to its own activist kind of battle at the moment you know these are incredible businesses you know workday salesforce you know microsoft you know you look at all of those and they are big category leading giants you know multi tens of billions or hundreds of billions of market cap you know they they touch and change all parts of the tech ecosystem all the time they're they're embedded in the fabric of what all of us does every day whether we know it or not you know it's the software that runs the back offices of businesses we touch it's the software that we all probably inhabit and use as employees and organizations. You know, so those things aren't going away. And some of those businesses had big valuation drops. And yet, actually, there's still high growth, high profit companies, you know, that actually are going to be around in 10, 20, 30, 40 years time and will continue to, to kind of pioneer and innovate. There were definitely sort of bursts of, of, you know, market mania, the Bitcoin bubble, the kind of tulip mania aspects in some of the areas. So, you know, things around, you know, some of the cybersecurity names, you know, they were really frothily valued on NASDAQ, again, in the kind of summer of 2021. Many of those have had big sell-offs and big drops. But, you know, again, are they really important? Given Ben's earlier point about Nicole Perloff's book about hacking, you know, yeah, they're really important. You know, you don't want to be flying blind in the internet these days. You do need more and more protection. And most state hacks, sorry, most hacks are state-led or state-backed. You know, most of the big hacks come out of certain bad actor countries. Read the Nicole Perloff book for more information on that. Um, you know, and you'll sort of see if you're up against that kind of firepower, which is quasi-military firepower, you do need to have some pretty good cyber tools. So, you know, is it worthwhile having cybersecurity, but, you know, stocks, are they overly valued? They have been, but I'd say probably better valued today. Just a follow-on question, a nice, easy one. So they've gone, if we use your EBIT uh, multiples from, you know, say high 60s to 30, in uh, over the last 30 years of investing in this space, uh, where what's the lowest you've seen them? Um, good question. I'd say way back in the mists of time, sort of 20 years ago, that was the absolute nadir after the, uh, you know, dot-com boom and bust. You know, and these things were valued at, you know, single-digit EBITDA multiples. You know, and, and, and some of the most mature, very steady businesses are on high single-digit, low double-digit EBITDA multiples today. But, you know, many of the big, more mature businesses that are low growth, but very profitable, very sticky, very mission critical, they might be trading at around, you know, 20, 22, 23 times EBITDA, current year EBITDA. They may be trading at that level today. In the market mania a couple of years ago, they were maybe trading in the 30s, multiples of EBITDA. You know, do I feel they're probably a little bit oversold at the moment? Maybe. Which, again, I know for those who don't operate in tech, these multiples sound probably crazy. You know, if you're looking at, you know, consumer companies, industrial companies, whatever. But I would actually argue that these businesses are, you know, the future and, and are longer dated 
than some of the businesses in other sectors that you might read across to. So you are paying a premium because you're buying into that next industrial revolution. On the subject of the industrial revolution or the next one, I, I couldn't agree more. And if you think of people like Carlotta Perez, which I know you would have read, she would say that we're still only kind of halfway through. And obviously it comes in different ways and we've got this big broadening. But can I just focus on a couple of points you brought up? It seems somewhat paradoxical to me that the big winners that you mentioned are the people who've already been around for 40 years and able to adopt this. It, it seems to me that almost you would expect another generation of disruptive firms coming through. And some of the sort of big winners today, like Google being probably the most obvious, really wasn't around 30 years ago. So do you see the case that they are the incumbents? They're going to stay there? Or do you see that perhaps there will be somebody else coming through or even just regulatory change? Because that seems to be something that's definitely growing. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ben. I, I think you're right. I think there are different sort of layers to this. So tech is a sector where there's constant innovation. But it used to be sort of innovation and we didn't have the kind of maturity. Now we've got innovation and we've got maturity. So you've got companies like Microsoft taking big stakes in open AI to access chat GPT and marry that up with office applications. You know, that's a kind of classic, big, mature company, you know, buys into small, high-growth, upstart kind of play. And as an M&A banker, you know, for the last 30 years, Time and time again, that's the kind of play that I've been kind of working for clients, you know, sell a high growth disruptive technology to one of the big, more mature incumbents. Your point is absolutely right. Many of the incumbents that we now see as the big industry mature names didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Or in the case of Microsoft, Oracle, those sort of names, they did exist, but they were very different businesses, much smaller and much more kind of, you know, sole product focused, you know, and then they've broadened out and grown, you know, hugely. You know, so I think it's really interesting, you know, to, to look at it as an investment, you know, viewpoint. Where do you put your money? Well, you definitely, in my view, would be you definitely put money into those big, mature industry giants. It might be Google, it might be Microsoft, it might be Meta, you know, it might be Salesforce, it might be all those sort of players because they're big and they're buying up the next generation of technology all the time. The biggest and most active acquirers of technology are those names. And you go back maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was names like IBM, Oracle, those are the people. Now it's Microsoft, it's Salesforce, it's Workday, it's those sort of folks. So, you know, I think it's it's a mix of, you know, playing the maturity end of the spectrum and then also trying to play the, the, the new nascent exciting technology end of the spectrum. And, you know, you can do that if you're bold and, you know, willing to risk your capital by investing directly into startups through some of the angel networks that exist, or you invest into EIS and DCT funds that play that, that world. And it sounds like you've already had some of the leading kind of tech VC types on, and, you know, they, they probably have EIS kind of vehicles that you could look at investing in, you know, that'd be another way to play it. And then I think, you know, you do look at some of the new names that go to IPO in the US, a lot of those have been in cybersecurity. We really haven't had many at all in Europe, and I don't think that's going to change. The European play has been to build amazing technologies, genuinely world-class technologies, but then typically sell them to usually Americans for a very good price um, at an earlier point in the life cycle. Whereas in Silicon Valley and in Wall Street, the ecosystem is much deeper, much richer, much broader, and you can start a company in your garage, you know, in the case of Google, you know, go all the way, float it, keep going, keep going. You can do that there. You don't really have that that luxury in Europe, but you can build something amazing here. And then in the case of DeepMind, you know, sell it to Google for, you know, pick a number. The, the, the figure that was quoted in the press, I think, was about half a billion dollars. 
for a business that had literally no revenue and was three amazing visionary uh, IT engineers, software engineers, and you know some phenomenal patents. Can you see that changing going forward? When you're looking at public equities, it does seem to suggest that Europe is going to become more and more public markets with just old-fashioned companies with old technologies. And we've uh, had one of our other guests talking about he's hoping to try and pivot traditional financial companies into making more VC-type investments. But the way we look at things, it seems to be that actually a lot of those natural investors, the pension funds, are actually moving the other way into fixed income. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of traction out of the traditional shops going there and public markets don't seem to be there for them anyway. Are you hopeful or or is it kind of set in stone now? I I think it's a really, really good um, question and frankly one that we could talk about all afternoon, but I know we we don't have the time. But I would say, again, a point I made earlier, I think you've got to look at this pragmatically rather than idealistically. You know, would I love to see a massively thriving London Stock Exchange for tech? Sure. You know, and I was floating a load of companies probably until about 2007 timeframe, something like that. But now you don't really do that. Now you build, you scale them up, and then you sell them either to, to investment funds, private equity and growth equity funds, which again, you know, didn't really exist in the same way 20 years ago. But now there's a massive variety, massive deep pool, over 100 funds I could list to you who are investing in London and Europe. You know, they might be homegrown they might be american they might be asian in origin but you know they're piling money into the sector so there's almost been like a a pendulum swing then between kind of public markets and private markets and the people who would have invested in public markets whether it's you know the big pension fund uh limited partner investors sovereign wealths all those are the people they've rotated their capital to the world of private markets and so the private market environment and arena is really exciting for tech and it's supportive and it's longer term. The public market environment, I think to your point, is lots of, to me, it looks like lots of industrials and natural resources and consumer companies. And I'm not really seeing much tech or innovation. And I'm not seeing the appetite from investors in that those markets to really back this and double down for the long term. So, you know, you, you get kind of what you wish, wish for, really. You know, the market has spoken. The money's moved to the private markets for tech. And that's where it seems to be staying. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Simon. Just to finish off then, so if anybody's in need of your gentleman banking services, what will be the best way to get hold of you? <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's, that's very kind of you, Ben. Um, I would say look me up on LinkedIn. It's just Simon Russell. You'll, you'll see me there. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, um, pretty well connected. So yeah, definitely reach out there and happy to connect, happy to talk more. Cool. Thank you, Simon. That's all for me. I always always like to offer a you know a, a gentleman's plug, but uh, you've obviously mentioned a business um, that you're part of, Planner, a couple of times. Are there any other businesses that you're working on that we should uh, check out? Look, thank you. I mean, Planner is is really awesome. Um, it's it's privately owned. It's backed by some very big family office money. Uh, we're going to keep it privately owned for for a long time while we keep sort of scaling it, and then we don't have to you know think about external distractions. Uh, we get a lot of inbound interest from VCs, which is really sort of uh, exciting and interesting, but but not really right at the moment for the stage of business that we're at. Um, look, if anyone's in a VC or private equity fund, that is the community that we sell the Planner software to. We sell it into investment funds for them to use across their portfolio companies. So if many from the CFA uh, community are in those kind of entities and are interested in looking at it, you know, I'd love to talk to you. 
I'm not the guy to give a software demo, but I can get the very bright folks at Planner to get on a video call with you and show you what it's all about. It's pretty awesome technology. And literally the funds have used it so far uh, are finding like a 98% accuracy in forwarding, uh, predicting the future. So, you know, look, you know, it's pretty cool and we'd love to show you what it is. And look, don't worry, it's not Skynet. It won't kill you if you don't sign the contract. Um, we haven't yet built that functionality, but we're working on it. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. That's all from me. Thanks, Simon. And hopefully maybe speak soon when you're involved in even more businesses. <laughs> Thank you very much. Really great talking with you. Thank you for the invite.